you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you would open them up to Genesis chapter 2, that's going to be our, our main text, Genesis chapter 2. And while you're doing that, let me, uh, let me sort of recap why we're in the midst of a series called The Lord of the Rings. I don't think I can overstate this because I believe it so passionately. That if this church or any church is going to be powerfully used by God for kingdom purposes, then the marriages within this church have got to become supremely satisfying and God-honoring. And if I could boldly say this, from talking to many of you, I know of few marriages in our church that can say that they're supremely satisfying and honoring to God. Something's not right. And we need to begin paying attention to the very marriages that we're in. I hope that doesn't unsettle you to hear that. Because I do believe this to be true. That God has a beautiful, beautiful marriage that is available to every person in Christ. But you have to work at it. It has to become intentional because if it doesn't become intentional where we work at our marriages each and every day, then I can promise you this, we are going to coast. And you're only coasting one direction. And it's not uphill. So would you please involve yourself in this series whether you're married or not. By the way, if I could write a book tomorrow, the book that I would write tomorrow would be called Before I Say I Will. Because as soon as you're engaged, you're almost singular-mindedly ladies thinking about the day of your wedding, men, the day of your honeymoon. And there's very, very little change that can occur once you lock down your sights this is him, this is her. There's a whole lot of benefit gained before you get engaged to start looking at those little foxes that could destroy the vineyard of your soon-to-be marriage. So when I do premarital counseling, session number one, without fail, is what I'm going to teach you this morning. And so I hope you listen this morning and I want you to hear this story, this illustration, because I think it's going to set the, the, our minds on what we're going to be learning from God's Word. Thomas Wheeler was a former CEO of the Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company. He tells this story about a time that he and his wife went on a road trip, and they just get out of their town when they stop to get gas at this little one-attendant gas station. And Wheeler gets out while his tank is being filled by this man and he stretches his legs. And when he comes back, he sees this attendant talking animatedly with his wife. And as he was getting back into his car, he sees this guy wave to her and say to her, it was great talking to you. And as they drove away, his curiosity is now piqued 
Wheeler turns to his wife and, sa- and asks them, did you know that man? Well, she did know him. They went to high school together and actually dated for a year. And he says to her this, boy, were you lucky that I came along? Because if you had married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant instead of the wife of a CEO. Now, I want you to hear what she says, because it's going to frame what you're going to learn this morning. She says to him, honey, if I had married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be pumping gas. (laughs) True story. Now, friends, listen, whether you are married right now or one day will be, what I'm about to tell you can completely change a marriage. Now, I'm not usually that bold. If you've been coming to this church any regular amount of time, you probably have rarely, if ever, heard me say something like that before. I'm not bold unless I know what I'm about to tell you is absolutely centered on God's word and needs to be said. If you want a marriage that is supremely satisfying and God-honoring, listen to me right now, friends. What I'm going to tell you is a secret to getting there that few people I know of understand. And it's session one in premarital counseling. And I don't think I've ever encountered anybody that has ever been able to really say, I knew that. But it's right there in plain sight, right in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and it provides for us what we need to hear, that if we will live it, will give us the marriage that is God-honoring and supremely satisfying. Because if we understand this truth, what God designed marriage to be, it's going to enable us to view our spouses in a way that we may never have before, because God wants to conform us to his image. Everybody latch on to that because it's going to underpin this sermon. God wants to conform us to his image. Why is that? Is it because God is so egotistical that he can't think of anybody else being happy but him? Is that really what it is why God wants to conform us to his image? Well, I can't tell you this. God loves nobody more than himself. That does just make sense, right? If God loves anybody more other than himself, then he's guilty of idolatry. So yes, God supremely loves himself within the Trinity. But the reason he's conforming us to his image, the reason he is inexorably doing that in our lives is because our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction, our widest influence will be realized only when our character becomes more and more like Christ. And he's designed marriage, listen, he's designed marriage to chisel, to help, to encourage, and enable us to be more like him. So Genesis chapter 2, to me, is one of the most exciting, riveting, endlessly deep sections of the entire Bible. No matter how many times I've read and studied Genesis chapter 2, every time I return to it, God keeps showing me truths that I somehow missed before. 
And if we're going to gain an understanding of what marriage was originally intended to be, what we're calling the fellowship of the ring, what marriage was like in the garden, here is where we need to look. Chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to learn two things. First, we're going to learn that we are created to enjoy relationships. Look what God says in the first part of that. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, friends, there's two things, at least, that are extremely powerful, extremely illuminating and telling in that verse, the first part of that verse. And if you're very, very familiar with Genesis chapter 1, and you get to this verse in chapter 2, then it is definitely noticeable. Because both parts of this first half of verse 18 go against the original design, the very fabric of God's original creation. Look what it says. It is not good. Friends, do you realize this? Now listen. That phrase, it is not good, had never ever been uttered from the lips of God before this moment in regards to his creation. Five times in chapter 1, we read God stamping his approval upon creation with the statement, and God saw that it was good. And after looking at all that he had made, at the end of the sixth day, God says even more greatly, it was very good. And when, when God sees something, listen, this is true today. When God sees something that is good to him, here's his automatic response This is the very character, the very attribute of God. He blesses that person. And it's exactly what he did in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. To be blessed by God, friends, what's that mean? We hear that all the time. We sing that all the time. What's it really mean to be blessed by God? Can I give you at least a working definition of that? And there's a lot more to it. But to be blessed by God is to live within his favor and peace. My dog provides a great example of this. My dog is seriously attuned to my face. I don't know why. If I come home and Rusty sees me looking annoyed, you know what he does? Oftentimes he goes up into Matthew's bedroom where he stays and gets into his crate. And no matter how much I call him, he won't come out. But when he sees me coming home and I'm in a great mood and I'm happy, his tail starts wagging, he almost falls off our little um, portico area and just wants me to pet him. And it's the same with God. When God sees something good, he blesses it. And what's it mean to be blessed? It means that we live within God's favor and his favor, friends, listen, produces peace. You know what else it produces? It produces a confidence that we are so loved by God that we can live freely. And when we get to chapter 2, we start in verse 4, we zoom in close to the creation of humanity, and here's what happened. God took a pile of dust, and he shaped it into a man, and then he does something highly interesting. He He bends down, and he breathes into the nostrils of that lifeless pile of dirt. You know what the Hebrew means when it says he breathed into the man? 
It's, it's the same expression that we do when we blow on coals to fan them into flame. This is a puffing to blow your candles out on your birthday. This is a mighty ruach, that's the Hebrew. This is the Spirit of God blowing mightily into the nostrils of that inanimate lump of dirt to bring life into him, and he called him Adam. And he takes that man, and he puts him into the Garden of Eden, and he puts him in there to tend to it, to keep it. Now listen, because you all knew that. But there's a third reason he put him in the garden. You ready? To enjoy it. I don't know why we don't get that part. Yes, he's keeping it. Yes, he's tending it. But this was a gift to Adam in order to help him to enjoy life. But Adam's the only human on the planet. There are no other human beings. This is it. And so we come to our text in chapter 2, verse 18, and we're allowed to eavesdrop in on a conversation by God. By the way, how can God have a conversation with himself? It's because all the Trinity is present. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he's talking not to Adam. He's talking to himself. And he says this, it is not good. You see, God sees Adam, who had no one after his kind, and he says startlingly, this is not good. The reason that it wasn't good is that it goes against the very nature of God. And that leads us to the second part of the phrase. Look back in verse 18. It is not good what? What's not good, he says, for the man to be alone. See, all through chapter 1 in Genesis, we keep reading things like, and God said, let there be light, or, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. You know what that's called in English? It's called the singular first person narrative. It means that the person who's telling the story is telling the story as an observer, not as somebody involved in the story. But all of a sudden you get to verse 26 and it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and he blesses the men and the women and all of a sudden the 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 grammatical tense changes and all of a sudden now it's the first person plural which means that the narrator god is now telling the story while being involved in the creation no longer is the observer now he stepped into it and friends listen the very moment that god stepped into his creation was when he created men and women You know what the name for God is here? It's Elohim. And whenever you read Elohim, you're reading a word that means plurality. This is the Trinity in reference. The triune God. And he's intimately involved now for the first time in creation. Yes, he created the stars and the sun and the universe and the land and the waters and the fish and the animals yes he created all that but now for the first time god stepped into his creation and he created men and women because unlike anything else in creation humanity is created in their likeness and in his image and one of the ways that he creates people to image him is to exist in a free relationship so why is it good why is it not good for man to be alone because we are created men and women 
to, and we're brought into existence even today to enjoy personal relationships. If you ever see somebody that has pulled up stakes and said, I don't need anybody anymore, I don't want anybody anymore, and they isolate themselves socially, you're seeing one of the most blatant distortions of the image of God you could possibly see. Because we're created to image the triune God, which exists in relationship that's free. And this is true for single men and women, just as well as it's true for married men and women. We're created to supremely enjoy relationships with others of our own kind. Now, some of you, you know, when you preach regularly, you sort of begin to relax a little bit. Hopefully not too much where you say stupid things, which I often do. But you begin to relax, and you begin to be more attuned to your audience. And one of the things that I'm tuning into right now is somebody wake me up when he says something interesting. I don't know if you know this, but I've been saying some pretty interesting things that are going to build the framework for, I think, the secret that can make your marriages supremely satisfying and God-honoring. So hang in there, pull back, clue in, and let's look at what God is saying. For those of you who are single, because you've never married, you're too young to marry, you married and it was painful, you divorced, or your, mar or your spouse died, whatever the reason, for those who are single, God does call certain people into a life or a period of singleness. And this calling, friends, I cannot emphasize it enough, and it's what we learn here, this calling is no calling to a half-life of existence. Because there are beautiful, gregarious, social people who never marry and instead find perfect fulfillment in friendships and deep satisfaction in them. You don't have to be married to image God. But listen, you, there is no greater way to image God on earth than in the covenant of marriage. And when we get to chapter 2, verse 18, Adam's not just single friends, he's utterly alone. There's no one available like him. And God said to him, it's not good to be alone. You know what that word means? Alone in the Hebrew it means separated to yourself. It's not good to be separated to yourself. And what's that word, that phrase, not good, mean? This is extremely interesting. I hope you write it down. It's more than the absence of something good. It means that there's a substantial deficiency. Friends, that's what it means to be alone. God said it's not good. There's a substantial deficiency in Adam because he's separated to himself. Because there's nobody available to him that's like him. And despite living in Eden with an incredible array of life all around them, there was something missing for Adam and friends. Listen, it could not be provided by a pet. Even though dogs can be man's best friends and there's absolutely no purpose for God ever creating cats, there just is nothing redeeming about a pet. You know, Arnold Toynbee, I'm going I'm to prove it to you. Arnold Toynbee pointed out 
that it is possible for a man and a dog to have great fellowship, spending many enjoyable hours together, playing games, giving and receiving affection. But listen to this. But the fellowship must be on the dog's level because dogs can only communicate on that level. You see, Adam had nobody on his level to share life with. He was separated unto himself, and that separation, that aloneness, created in him a substantial deficiency. And he began to realize this when God brought all the animals before Adam to name them. So why isn't it good for man, for Adam to be alone? Is it because the garden was too big and he needed somebody to help him take care of it? Is that why it wasn't good for him to be alone? Is it because, like my lovely, wonderful dog, that when Adam stays alone for too long, he tends to bite off the heads of Andrew's superheroes? Is that why it's not good for Adam to be alone? Because he gets in trouble without a wife? By the way, that is one of the reasons I hear from parents, oh, she's going to be good for him. He needs somebody like her. If that's why you're getting married, both of you are in a lot of problems. Is that really why God said, Adam, it wasn't good for him to be alone? The answer is not that he needed her help to tend the garden, although she was going to give it. Not that he needed her to help care for Eden. He needed her, friends, listen, to enjoy living in the garden. That's why it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. There was nobody like him to enjoy all of what God had given him. Because God means for life to be lived in relationship, and the highest expression on earth is in marriage. So God created Eve, and he gave her to Adam in marriage so that they could live out his image, live after his likeness, to become as one with each other, just like the father is with the son and the spirit now friends you're you're familiar with john chapter one probably do you remember how it goes in the beginning what was the word and the word the word is jesus logos in the greek in the beginning was a word and what the word was god and the word was with god okay now that word with that preposition in the greek is a highly interesting word you know what it means it means facing toward so in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was God, and Jesus was facing toward God. For all eternity, you know why Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time in eternal existence, Jesus the Son no longer had his Father facing to him. He turned away. See, this facing toward each other is what Adam and Eve enjoyed as they perfectly imaged God and lived after his likeness. Ladies, let me ask you a question. You ever been out on a date with your husband? And you have so looked forward to this. And your expectations, which are always there, and your hope and your yearning, which is building by the moment, gets fulfilled on this date, but he had a bad day at work and we wants to talk about work and he's not really wanting to talk about you and he's facing away from you the entire day. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Then you'll know what it means then to start going in separate ways. Men, if you were to, if you're to enjoy 
supremely satisfying personal relationships with your wives, then there is a facing toward her that is crucial. In intimate marriages, husbands and wives, they face, or in other words, live out their lives toward one another. She's the main subject of your conversation. She's the central person of your interest, not all the people around you. It's not your job. It's not your, co- your co-workers that dominates your conversation. She's the source of your joy, not your career, not your hobbies. You know, this last week, Denise did our roadmap, something I'm hoping all of you did, and we did it on Thursday evening. And she commented to me how much love I communicate to her when I will turn off that television or actually more prevalent in my life when I will close that book and face her in relationship. She feels valued. She feels important to me. And how often I forfeit that to do what I want to do. And when I do what I want to do, I'm no longer in intimacy with my wife. I'm going away from her. Do you realize, friends, how many marriages lose intimacy the longer that they stay married? The marriage begins to be lived away from each other, two separate people under one roof, and gone is the unity, gone is the intimacy of marriage. And it happens because of busyness. It happens because we no longer intentionally work at our marriages. It happens because our career paths dominate our lives, you know one of the main reasons it happens? And I see it over and over and over as marriages come fractured into my office. One of the main reasons that you lose intimacy in marriage is because of secret sin. Sin that one of the partners commits but will not tell the other for fear of being exposed and they're losing their intimacy, they're going in separate ways so that he or she will never find them out. And the words of God come crashing back. It's not good to be alone. It's not how you image me. Because God created marriage for us to enjoy relationships. We're only halfway through verse 18. There's another half, and I'm telling you right now, it provides the key for understanding how to have a supremely satisfying marriage, God-honoring. The second point is marriage is a gift with a purpose. <clears throat> Look at what God says in the second part of 18. I will make him a helper fit for him. You see, Adam was alone, separated unto himself, unable to enjoy the relationship that was experienced within the Trinity. And so after he became aware of something missing in his life, God makes for him a helper. How does he do that? Well, verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You want to hear something from Matthew Henry on this text? He says this of God's choice of taking a rib from Adam. He says this, Eve was not made of his head to top him nor was she made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. 
Eve was for Adam a helper. And there's wonderful truth in what I'm about to tell you, both for us who are married and for those who one day will be, but for radical feminists, you can't possibly make them angrier than this. Because if you just follow the most cursory, general, even superstitious, superstitious, superficial, better word, reading of Genesis chapter 2, then you will see that Adam was, here it is, made for, that Eve was made for Adam. She was made from Adam. She was given to Adam and then named by Adam. Now, ladies, before you throw things at me, this doesn't mean that every woman is to exist for every man, still less they must be obedient to every man, there, this is no argument that women cannot be heads of organizations or companies. This is the relationship that Eve had with Adam. Every wife must have for her husband. And one of her roles that God himself defines, he's the one talking, is that she would be a helper fit for him. And ladies, instead of putting you in your place, this elevates you to a God-ordained calling that you have in your marriages. It doesn't lower your self-esteem. Eve thrived when she knew what a helper really was because it wasn't a slave, it wasn't a cook, it wasn't a nursemaid, it wasn't a launderer. A helper was a term that denotes one who could provide what is lacking in another. Adam, I'm making you one who can provide for you what you're lacking. And her name is Eve. But what on earth could have been lacking in Adam? He was perfect. Well, for one thing, the opportunity to relate with another human being, that certainly was lacking. But more than that, he lacked the beauty the femininity provides the appreciation of smells and colors that many men just don't notice. Friends, listen, it's not because I'm a sinner that I really don't care if you buy me flowers. To my wife, it really works well. To me, I'd rather have cold, hard cash. But for Denise, if I'm in the doghouse, go get flowers and start confessing and be real with her. That's going to always work. But Adam was a man, the softness of touch that Eve brought, that brings such peace and such grounding to your husband. The ability to see God more completely because of the emotional and passionate strength of God's love expressed through your wife. The responsiveness of love that is so prevalent in women. Eve's passionate feelings, friends, would complement Adam's rational style and vice versa because god had given adam a job to do he says in verse 15 the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and to keep it but he was he but he was to do this within the blessings of god and eve was indispensable for adam's greatest blessing because she provided what was lacking in him she would make it possible for him to be what he can never have been alone but listen, it's not done. A helper, that's all what a helper is. Somebody who 
shores up the weaknesses of the other, provides what is lacking in the other person, but God said a helper fit for him. You know what that phrase fit for him means? It's a Hebrew expression literally meaning according to his opposite. You see, Eve supplied what Adam lacked and Adam supplied what Eve lacked so that they fit together perfectly. Do you see the beauty of Eve as his helper in the wisdom of God? Do you see that God has brought you married couples? He's brought you to one another because you offer a counterpart to your spouse, a counterpoint to your spouse, and that you provide what that person lacks. But I'm sure you can agree with me that these differences that are God-aware and the antidote that they are in your spouse, these differences between husbands and wives can produce frustration they can make conflict happen, or they can be seen wisely as redemptive tools to supply what is lacking in us. Friends, how often do we get irritated with the differences that are, are, are in our marriages? Because often my strengths are precisely Denise's weaknesses, and her strengths are precisely mine. And instead of seeing God's wisdom and bringing the two of us together how we are each his most prominent tool to conform us to his image and help us to live blessed by him. We judge each other and we try to force the other person to change into our image. And friends, if you succeed in getting your spouse to change into your image, you are on a fast track to destruction. Because God wisely brought you somebody that's not in your image so that it can make up for what you lack and bring you into the conformity of Christ and the ability to live out his blessings. It's this mindset that if we can grab hold of it in our marriages, it brings equality, unity, understanding, patience, and beauty to them. Husbands, wives, God has brought to you your helper perfectly fit for you and you might rail against that person you might get frustrated with that person you might even get resentful of that person but that's because you're not seeing through god's redemptive eyes husbands have we consistently recognized and affirmed in our wives their God-given worth and importance in our lives to make us more like Christ and to enjoy life. So that we can say with God's word, an excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Wives, have you seen in your husband God's incredible wisdom and in bringing you to him in marriage? Because until we can see the principle in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, our marriages will not be either effective tools for spiritual growth, nor can they ever be enjoyable to be able to let us live in God's blessings. Because it is not good that the man should be alone, so God makes 
the antidote. And he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. That's God's genius in marriages. And so often we don't understand it. Men, are you married? Or guys, you who are going to get married someday? Let me tell you right now, this can change your marriage. Ladies, when you understand God's wisdom in bringing you to your husband, girls who are single, God's wisdom one day, finding its expression and leading you to the man he wants you to marry, you're going to realize that when you live out his wisdom, you will have a supremely satisfying marriage that is honoring to him. I've given you an application. I really hope you do these. Men, can I speak to you for a moment? Listen, please. Be the leader. Don't let your wife have to come begging to you. Can we do Pastor Tim's homework assignment? That should never, ever come out of their lips. Because God's ordained you to lead in your marriages. We're going to learn what that looks like in a few weeks coming up. Take initiative, lead, take this application, get out there on a date, no distractions, and walk through this. Yes, I know it's scary to talk about your feelings. Ladies, I can tell you over and over and over, I've heard you tell me that I so want to pray with my husband, and I come to him all the time asking him, can we start praying together? And I've not yet seen an exception that I'm aware of where the husband has it told me that when she says that to me, I get a flutter of anxiety that goes through me. Because there's nothing more intimate between a husband and a wife than praying before God. It far exceeds sexuality. Souls are bared, and you know what? Men don't like that. Men take the lead, and ladies respond let them lead and see what the lord can do in your marriage lord thank you so much for your word in genesis chapter 2 god there is so much in the bible that shows us how we can love one another better and how we can have a supremely satisfying marriage that honors you god i pray that we would learn these truths and live them out immediately Lord, let us see that in your wisdom you have brought to us in a covenantal relationship the person that will make up for what we're lacking, our counterpart, different from us, but beautifully designed. And Lord, I pray that we'd quit railing against one another, quit being bitter and frustrated and trying to change these people and our, our spouses into our image. Lord, that we would realize that it's your wisdom that has brought us together. Let us live in that wisdom so that our lives can be conformed to the image of Christ and we can learn to live in your fullest blessings. And in Jesus' name, amen.